Welcome to this Mount Pleasant Baptist Church podcast recorded at our Kubalup campus. We're glad you've joined us and we pray that the Lord will speak to you and encourage you through this message. Well, Mercy Over Judgment is our title and I don't, you probably don't have to uh, look too hard to find that judgment is one of those things that is everywhere in our world and Sometimes it's there for a good reason, you know, just uh, had the Olympics the last two weeks where judgment is about declaring a winner and finding out who's the best and celebrating that and accomplishment. You know, we have judgment for crimes when uh, someone needs to serve their time and be deterred from doing it again. But for the most part, judgment in this world is a negative thing and it's used as a weapon to tear people down to be critical, to separate us in relationship. I saw just yesterday morning a clip from Martin Isles, who some of you might know, he's a guy from the ACL lobby, and he says a lot of things about a lot of different topics. But this particular one, he was sharing the story of what he'd seen in the Today Show uh, in a week or two ago. And the Today Show on Channel 9 had this segment where they took a Facebook post uh, that they just stumbled across of this random lady And they were showing it because in this post, she said something along the lines of, you know, I'm a a mum who uh, stays up late at night making sure that I've cleaned the house, that I've got the washing in the machine, that I've prepared lunches for my husband and my kids. I get up early, sometimes as early as 4.30 a.m. and make sure that I make my kids their breakfast and my husband his breakfast and get ready for the day. And uh, they proceeded to mock and snicker and deride this woman uh, as setting back the female gender and as being uh, (laughs) something less than because of all this effort that she went to for her family. Then they proceeded to uh, chastise the husband for for not pulling his weight and for letting her do all this for him. And it's not to say that it's right or wrong, but, you know, they don't... Know this lady, they didn't know this man, they had no connection to him whatsoever or her. They didn't know any context, any story, and because it differed to their view on the way things should work, and I'm not saying all women should be doing this, please don't misunderstand me, but because she chose to do this, they trashed her name on national television. That's judgment, and it's despicable. And there's a better way according to scripture. And as we see from Joseph's story today, mercy even triumphs over judgment, scripture says. So we're going to start uh, by retelling the story. And we need to probably take a step back and look at what's happened so far because it's quite a long and convoluted story. Moses, when he wrote the five books, didn't spare any details when it came to Joseph. He's a significant character in the life of uh, not only Jewish history, but Christian history. And so we start with Joseph being 17 years old when, as you may remember, he has some dreams and he draws the ire of his brothers. They come to hate him so much that they sell him into slavery at just 17. And as a slave, he ends up in Potiphar's house and things go well for him there for a season until Potiphar, his wife, falsely accuses him of rape and he ends up in prison. And while in prison for years, he comes across a cupbearer and a baker for Pharaoh. He interprets two dreams that they have separately, dreams that 
the meaning he explains comes true. And so the cupbearer, his meaning is that you'll get back to serving Pharaoh. And that's exactly what happens. The cupbearer leaves his prison sentence and goes back into the court of Pharaoh, but forgets about Joseph. He doesn't help him in any way, shape, or form. We fast forward a few years later, and uh, Joseph's still in prison, but the Pharaoh himself has two particular dreams. And he's searching high and wide for the meaning to these dreams because they perturb him, they stir him up, and he wants to know why he's having them. But no one can offer him an answer, a solution. Suddenly the cupbearer remembers that this uh, Hebrew slave in prison that he served with is capable of interpreting dreams. So he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh drags him in front of him. And with God's help, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream. And it's essentially this. You'll have seven years of good harvest and good seasons and seven years of famine and devastation. And Joseph goes on to tell Pharaoh how they can survive this famine. And so in one day, Joseph goes from prison to the palace. He becomes in charge of this recovery plan to save everyone's lives. And Pharaoh eventually makes him second in command. He's the second most powerful world of the most powerful civilized nation at the time. We get to when he's about 39 years old. It's two years into the famine and it's Egypt's fine. They've got the food that Joseph helped save up, but the famine's so bad it spreads to the land of Canaan where Jacob and his family are. And so Jacob hears about Egypt having all this food, so he sends his sons, 10 of them, to Egypt to appear before Joseph to ask for food. When they arrive, they don't know that it's their brother. They don't recognize him, but Joseph knows it's them immediately. And so they'd make this visit twice. They get their food once, go back to Canaan, then they have to come back for more twice. And on the second time, they go through this series of tests. Joseph wants to know just how his brothers are all these many years later. And as they appear before him the second time, he sees that they're broken, broken men, repentant, and they're pleading for mercy before him. And so this is where we pick up in our passage today. Uh, which comes from Genesis 45, verses 1 to 20. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay 
You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves and so can my brother Benjamin that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterward, his brothers talked with him. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Tell your brothers, do this. Load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I'll give you the best of the land of Egypt and you can enjoy the fat of the land. You are also directed to tell them, do this. Take some carts from Egypt for, you, for your children and your wives and get your father and come. Never mind about your belongings because the best of all Egypt will be yours. It's just an incredible passage. It's really deep. So we're going to spend some time unpacking it. But it begins with a revelation, with the identity of this man being revealed. Up until now, his brothers had only known that this man was the saviour and lord of Egypt. You know, they heard in the streets as people talked about this man who had spared them from this famine. And here they stand before him pleading for their lives, pleading for their next meal. And suddenly Joseph, overwhelmed by emotion, sends them away. And he says, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? Now let's put ourselves in the brother's shoes for a moment because how do you think they're feeling as this unfolds? They're begging for their lives and who are they begging for it from? The same man that they sold into slavery. The same man that they threatened to kill. They're looking to salvation from the man that they terrorized as a child that they abused and mistreated, and now he holds their fate in his hands. How would you be feeling if you were in their shoes? You know, for me, as I think about it, I just imagine uh, skydiving, you're 14,000 feet in the air, you jump out the plane, and about halfway down, you realize your parachute's not working. You have no control. You're completely helpless as the ground, as you hurtle towards the ground just helpless, completely out of control of your destiny and what's about to come. So it's not surprising in verse 3, Joseph's brothers can't answer him uh, because they can't answer his question, is my father still living? Because they're terrified at his presence. That word terrified means they're deeply disturbed. They're dismayed. They're literally shaking. So much so they can't speak. They're frozen in their spot. Why? because their past has caught up to them, because standing there in front of them is literally their sin, their wrongdoing, their guilt, their shame. The thing they regret from years before has now appeared before them suddenly and there's no escape. Their fate is sealed. Surely Joseph's going to exact revenge. Surely he's going to take this moment to punish them for hurting him, because if we were in his shoes, in Joseph's shoes now, what would we do? 
You know, when I see someone cut me off as I'm driving or go even just 10 k's under the speed limit in, my, in the right-hand lane, I want to really shake them and let them know just how displeased I am. I need them to understand. This week, I've had a number of occurrences just gone where people have let me down and people have not come through for me and they've been selfish and they've done the wrong thing and I want them to know about it. I want to yell and scream. You know, you get stirred up in your heart. What would you do if you were Joseph? You know, how do you respond when you have an argument with someone, when they've wronged you? Do you, you know, hold on to that resentment? Do you run away from people? Do you give them a piece of your mind? Do you give them a knuckle sandwich? Do you just be consumed by this grudge? I can't believe they did that to me. How dare they? And you just hold on tight and you never seem to let it go. And it just grips you. You know, how, do you, how would you respond in Joseph's position? Well, he doesn't do any of that. What does he do? He reconciles himself to them. In verse 4, it says, Come close to me. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Notice he doesn't forget what they've done to him. He doesn't forget that they've wronged him. He remembers the dead arms and the noogies that they gave him. He remembers their hateful words. He remembers that they chucked him in a pit and abandoned him there and left him to die and then took him out of that pit only to sell him off to slave traders. He doesn't forget. But what does he do? Instead of rubbing it in, in verse 5 he says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. These are the same men who in Genesis 37, when they threw him down the pit, then went and had enough composure in the midst of what they had done to have a meal next to this pit that they dug him in. And they're having a meal, and as they're having this meal, they're saying, talking out loud to one another about what they're going to do to Joseph while he's there listening in. And this conversation starts with murder, and I guess it gets better from there as it turns to slavery. But these same men are now in front of him for the first time in 22 years, and he forgives them. He says, do not be angry with yourself. He doesn't want them to dwell in their past. He doesn't want them to beat themselves up. And you know, how often do we beat ourselves up when we wrong people? How often do we dwell on the mistakes we've made? How often do we want others who have wronged us to dwell on their mistakes? How often do we hold them up to that sort of standard? We want them to know what they've done wrong. But Joseph doesn't want that for his brothers. He gives them this unconditional forgiveness and mercy and love. Why can he do that? How is he able to move into that position? Because he sees what he's been through, through eyes of faith. There's so much in our lives that would be completely and radically transformed if we could just learn to look at what we go through, through eyes of faith. Joseph sees God's mercy. In verses 5 to 8, he says, It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. In other words, he's saying, you sinned, you did the wrong thing, I endured the suffering, but God allowed it all to happen so that I could save and be used to save many lives. God allowed me to suffer 
so that I could ascend to this throne where you, the very people who turned your backs on me, are now saved by me. This is why this has all happened. And I wonder as you hear that whether it's starting to sound familiar, this story. Have we experienced something similar? And not only does Joseph extend mercy in the sense that he doesn't give them the punishment they deserve, but he also restores them to a new life. He lavishes with grace. He gives them what they have not earned or deserved. He gives them new life. In verse 10, Joseph says to his brothers, you shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you and all you have. He wants his family back. He wants relationship with his family. He wants to be reunited in life and to live with them for the rest of his days. Not only that, he wants to provide for them. In verse 11, Joseph says, I'll provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. And it's after he says that that he throws his arms around Benjamin, that he kisses his brothers and talks with them. He moves from hostility to intimacy in a matter of moments. They could expect to be shunned. They could expect to have their necks on the chopping block. But instead, it's intimacy. It's come near to me. It's love. His betrayers, his Judases, suddenly he's promising to look after them for the rest of their days. With Joseph, they're safe. Without Joseph, they would be left destitute, without hope and without life. If that wasn't enough, the passage ends with this really curious part where Pharaoh, who's now the Lord of all, Pharaoh is the one who has total control. He now comes to them. And because of this suffering servant of his who's found favor in his eyes, because of Joseph, Pharaoh says to his family, I'll give you the best. Forget your belongings. Don't bring anything with you. Just come. I'll give you the best and of all Egypt and it will be yours. Now Pharaoh's showing his appreciation, showing his gratitude for, for Joseph by lavishing his brothers with his favor. And so hopefully by now you're starting to get the pattern of this story that it's exactly what we find in Jesus. Like Joseph's brothers, before we ever knew we needed a savior, God sent him ahead of us. And why was he sent there? Because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing. The father knew what would happen, so he raised up a savior a Lord of all heaven and earth, but he took him through suffering. Isaiah 53 says, We all like sheep have gone astray, turned to our own way, but the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. Romans 5, just at the right time when we were still powerless, when we didn't even know a famine was coming, when we didn't even know that we were starving, spiritually starving, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He went one step further than Joseph in his mercy and his love and his grace. He went through the grave for us. He knew what was, it's the uh, Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross because it was as he suffered that he could 
conquer death and ascend to a throne, not just over a region, but over all of the powers and principalities of darkness and the earth, of eternity, of your life and mine. Philippians 2 said, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, when Jesus is revealed to us as Lord and Savior, and I pray he is, you know, we could see him condemning us. Joseph had that right to do that. Jesus has that right to condemn us. We sent him there. But as Joseph did, so Jesus does. He says, come near to me. You shall live and be near to me. And because of him, we receive this new life as well. A new life of provision and intimacy and favor with the Father. And when we grasp the truth of this, that without him we would be there, physically, spiritually starving, sorry. But with him we're full and satisfied. When we begin to understand Jesus was our Joseph, then we can understand why he asks us to extend the same mercy to others. In Matthew 7, 2, he says, In the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why? Because he has measured to us what we didn't deserve. He's measured to us beyond what we could have ever hoped or imagined, and so he asks us to do the same. In Matthew 10, 8, he says, Freely you have received, now freely give. And so as we close today, I'm just going to ask Bev uh, to come forward. Bev's very generously offered to um, share her testimony with us of her own Joseph experience. So thanks, Bev, for coming and speaking with us today. It's a wonderful story. It's my second favourite story in the Bible, and I really urge you to read the whole story in one sitting. Genesis chapter 37 to 50. It's, it's wonderful. So, a long, long, long time ago, when I was young and silly and selfish and needy, I met a man, a man who um, made me feel good about myself. My family of origin, my parents, were emotionally disconnected from each other and they were emotionally disconnected from me and my siblings. We, I, we always had food on our table. We always had clean clothes, we always had a warm bed at night and for that I'm very grateful. But there was not an emotional warmth um, that, was very, that was visible. It was in practical ways, but we need more than those things. We need a, an emotional connection. It wasn't there, so I was very needy. So when this man paid attention to me, and I want to say my father was a man of few words. He, when he did speak, his words were critical or angry. And um, I was scared of him growing up. And even in, to my adult years, I was still scared of him. So when this man paid attention to me and um, said nice things and was kind and saw value in me, I fell hook, line and sinker. Six months after we met, he told me he was married. And I'm very ashamed to say that I chose at that point to continue the relationship. 
I was, uh, I was needy and I needed someone to be kind to me. Obviously, I had no moral compass. I didn't get that from my parents and I didn't get it from my um, church life. As a child, I went to church and Sunday school from the time I was five till about 16, 17, and I loved it. Um, I won prizes for Sunday school attendance, church attendance. Uh, even in high school when religious instruction was a subject, I won the prize for the knowing most. So I was learning many things about God, but I didn't know him personally. He was in my head but not in my heart. I accumulated lots of, lots of information about him, and I'm grateful for that now, but it was in my head. It wasn't affecting God. It was the Sunday morning God, nowhere else, not in my daily life. And, yeah, that, I had no moral compass to go forward. Six years further on in my story, I was pregnant with my first son. And I was happy at that time to, to go on life as a, as a single mother. And it was at that time that Jean found out about her husband's deceit and my deceit. As you can imagine, she was furious, angry, upset. Her world was turned upside down, um, especially that we had been having an affair for so long and now I was pregnant. Six months after she found out, she left him. For another six years, and by this time we were married, I had two sons, and we moved to the country. And for some strange reason, I wanted my boys to go to church and Sunday school like I had. And that was God calling me. I didn't know that at the time, but that was God's movement. Um, and fortunately for me, the, the group of people faith community I joined, had a group of people who knew God was real and alive. They knew that he um, was interested in their everyday life. They knew that he cared about them, that he answered prayer, that he healed. Um, yeah, that he was a personal God. And I fell in love <laughs> with their God. And I really took hold of uh, a faith at that time of my life. I read the Bible, read again with new eyes, it was now in my heart, not in my head. And I, I'd been christened as a baby, but of course that was meaningless to me. And I felt that I wanted to be baptised as a sign of my uh, new life. So I um, read the scriptures. There's not much in it about baptism. And usually it's followed, it's preceded by two words, repent and be baptised. So I said to God, okay, I feel to be baptised, what do I need to repent of? Um, I didn't go searching, but I asked God to search my heart, and I think that's probably an important thing. And I felt I knew that God wanted me to write a letter to Jean and to her children and to own and to say how sorry I was. Um, you know, I felt bad. I felt terribly bad. And um, to say sorry is such a meaningless word in one sense, but I knew that I had to say that. I had to be honest and own what I had done, not blame Jerry. It was I own my own stuff. So I wrote the letter and I um, sent it off. And the minute I put it in the letterbox, I had a most wonderful peace in my heart. Um, 
And I hope that you experience the peace of God because it's something that we can't manufacture. It's something really real. That was a gift that I hadn't expected. I didn't expect anything from this letter. I, I, I had no expectations. I didn't know what would happen. Um, but let me tell you, another six years forward and I and my children were welcomed into Jean's house. She had forgiven me. She had, she had not vocally expressed that, but her actions again. Um, and we became, in a sense, part of the same family. Um, her children and my children became brothers and sisters. I mean, it was just the most amazing, unexpected um, gift from God and from her. So as Joseph forgave his brothers and welcomed them with love, so Jean had forgiven me and welcomed me. I, don't, I didn't deserve it. Joseph's brothers didn't deserve it. But that is the God we serve and love. There is no condemnation. Um, and I thank you, Michael, for emphasising that Joseph said, come closer. I, I've read that story many times, but that hadn't hit me. But Joseph said, come closer to me. And that's what God says to us. Come close to me. Don't, you know, don't hang back. Um, I am a God who loves you. And I just want to finish off with um, a few words from a, a hymn that I love. It says, come as you are. That's how I want you. Come as you are. Feel quite at home. We have a place in the Father's house. It's waiting for us. Close to my heart, loved and forgiven. Joseph said, come closer. Jesus says, come closer. Come as you are. Why stand alone? Jesus loves us. Just go to him with your open arms and tell him the truth of who you are, what you've done. He's not. He doesn't judge. I have never once felt God's judgment, God's condemnation on me. I've judged myself. I'm the worst at judging myself. Other people have. But I have judged myself, but I have never, ever felt God. He's only been merciful and loving to me. So trust, trust the one who loves us. Thank you. It's a beautiful story and thank you to Bev for being so vulnerable and uh, being real and we want to see that in our midst. We want to be real with one another. We want to be true about what life is about what we go through, its ups and its downs. And, you know, the significant thing she said and points out in all of this is, you know, the reality is that before Jesus, we could and should be condemned, each one of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But he chooses not to, so the Father says, come close to me. Because Jesus says it was for a purpose like this, that I went through what I did, that I came through, that I now sit on this throne so that you can be free from shame and guilt. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know, do we take that for granted or do we know it? Do we love it? Do we respond to it in our lives? And as we close, let me just ask you to consider if you're a Joseph today, is there someone who's wronged you? Is there someone who you're struggling to let go of the pain that they've caused you? You can't do that on your own. It has to be an act of God, act of Christ as his love and mercy hits you afresh. But are you willing to come before him in honesty and say, Lord, I'm holding on to this. 
I'm holding on to this person. I want them to know what I've suffered from them. I want them to feel it. I want them to experience it for themselves. I want to shake them. I want to yell at them. I want to make them understand. But I want to now be free, and I want them to be free from me. You know, can you make that decision this morning? Can you go to the Lord in honesty about that? Maybe you're a Joseph's brother. (laughs) Maybe you need to know that you are forgiven. Whatever it is in your past, whatever it is in your history, if you turn in mercy, you will receive it. The Lord is good and faithful to forgive, one John says. Let's close in God. Thank you for joining us. We would love to hear from you. If you would like prayer, please submit a prayer request at mounties.org.au forward slash prayer or send an email to communications at mounties.org.au and one of our team will be in contact. Have a great week.